to Elevate Louisiana Engage podcast. Elevate Louisiana was founded earlier this year to empower women leaders throughout Louisiana by connecting and educating them on the challenges impacting our state with data-driven, nonpartisan solutions to make a better future for Louisiana. Hello, I'm your host, Julie Stokes. Today, we are recording the third episode in a four-part series on the state of education in Louisiana. These four videocasts are a prologue to an interactive webinar on September 25th between the members of Elevate Louisiana and the speakers that have appeared on our education series videocasts. Elevate's September 25th webinar will be a forum where our members will discuss Louisiana's education policies with the policy makers themselves so that our civic leaders can get more engaged in building a better future for our state. Today's panel was created to give listeners a look into education in 2020 from a practitioner standpoint. For this view, we have put together a diverse panel from all around the state, from both the traditional and the charter settings. First, we have Dr. Lamar Gouri, was appointed superintendent of Caddo Parish Public Schools in December of 2013. He serves over 40,000 students with 62 schools, including three charter agreements. In 2019, Superintendent Gori was named Louisiana Superintendent of the Year by the Louisiana Association of School Superintendents. Welcome, Superintendent Gori. Thank you. Patty Glazer's dynamic career includes more than 20 years of school leadership experience and 18 years as a speech language pathologist. Patty, a proud native of New Orleans, earned a doctoral degree in, in curriculum and instruction from the University of New Orleans, my alma mater. Um, Patty is the founding head of school and CEO of a group of charter schools, the Discovery Schools, Kenner, Kenner Discovery Health Science Academy, and Dr. John Oster Discovery Health Science Academy. Welcome, Dr. Glazer. Thank you for having me, Julie. And finally, Superintendent Richie Strong is a lifelong resident of West Carroll Parish. He's taught and coached in the system for 23 years. He served as a principal of Forest High School for over three years and was then promoted to supervisor over, well, it sounded like everything in the system, technology, exactly. transportation, <laughs> and maintenance uh, for the system. And then in 2014, he was named superintendent for the whole school system. Welcome, Superintendent Strong. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. So first, I'd like to just get a little bit of background on your school districts. Um, so I guess um, we can go in, um, whatever order, we'll go in the introduction order that we went in and we're gonna kind of do a little kind of fast fire so we can get through a lot of ground in 30 minutes. So just a little background about your schools. So Caddo Parish uh, is a, a large urban system located in North Louisiana. And uh, you know, in our system, I tell people that you have the best of all, of all worlds. Uh, if I were to leave my office and go to the school that's as far this away, it would take about 40 minutes to get there and you'd find yourself in a very rural setting yet you have uh, some true traditional uh, suburban areas where children just attend the school that's closest to their house. Uh, you yet have some of the highest performing magnet schools, you know, I say in the state, but really it's con 
country. Uh, just really high-performing magnet schools with, that are all selective uh, admissions based on academics. And, but then at the same time, you have an urban circle within the donut that is probably some of the most impoverished children in our country as well. So uh, a very diverse makeup of schools in our parish, uh, probably sitting at about 70% economically disadvantaged and about 65% uh, minority population. Now, uh, but what I'll say about our parish that makes it very unique is that it's really not a mill. Uh, we have extreme poverty, are generally pretty wealthy or to, to middle to upper middle class families. So that, that middle ground is somewhat missing. And that's an area where we often struggle with uh, from a performance perspective. We're either doing really, really good or really bad. So really how we're balancing and marrying that together has been one of the greatest challenges of leading the system. Interesting. Um, Dr. Glazer? Uh, Canner Discovery opened its doors in 2013 in Jefferson Parish as a type one charter school. We opened to 420 students and we've had great, tremendous academic success. We have a very positive school culture. And so we are both high demand and high performing. We have a wait list of over 1200 kids to get in. Um, we are very proud to say that we opened the doors this year to Dr. John Ochsner Discovery School, kindergarten through fourth grade. Kenner Discovery is kindergarten through 12th grade, and we graduated our first seniors last May, drive-in movie style, because of COVID. So it was an interesting first ceremony to have, one that won't be forgotten. Um, we have uh, maintained an A or B academic performance. We're very proud of that. We have a very diverse student body, open enrollment, about 50% um, African-American, Hispanic, people of color, let me say, and 65% economically disadvantaged and about 14% SPED. Our SPED count is a little bit higher than in the typical Jefferson Parish School. So uh, we're very proud of that this year due to COVID, we're offering an online option for Discovery Schools and about 18% of our population signed up for the online option. Hmm. Interesting, Dr. Strong? Well, we're about as traditional rural school system as you can get. I mean, we're out here in the, what, uh, we're almost in Arkansas and almost in Mississippi, right up in the corner of the state. Small school district, about 2,100 kids. Uh, still have three K-12s, not many, not many of those around. 90% uh, hmm. of my children are free or reduced lunch. Uh, we're basically in the Delta region. Uh, the challenge is there. The, the poverty gap just keeps getting wider and wider. Uh, the, due to the COVID, the lack of internet access, I feel like that gap's getting wider now than it ever has. And we have our own struggles. Number one thing is, is we have no economy here other than the agricultural economy and farming. There's not a lot of jobs. It's just, we're just kind of holding our own right now. Yeah. But we, well, do, um, we do good. I mean, we're a B district, been a B district for the last six years. Yeah, well, that's great. That's great. Um, really and that's, that's how we ended up picking people for this is that we wanted that diverse between rural and more urban um, settings and kind of around the state. So, you know, kind of focusing on COVID and uh, are you all virtual or all in person or do you have a hybrid plan or some other plan that I'm not even thinking of? Right. 
And, and I'll jump in on that. You know, what we did was we offered, and again, we talked a lot about uh, COVID and the, politi the political, political nature of how this virus has been uh, communicated and received. And I think in that respect, we really tried to make sure we kept the main thing the main thing, and that was the safety of our students and our staff, but at the same time, not creating uh, that academic pandemic that Richie describes. So we knew we had to look at how do we balance safety with providing education. In that respect, we decided early on to bring our elementary students back in a more traditional setting, of course, with major modifications and mitigation to address the virus. Now, we did a hybrid schedule, an AB hybrid schedule, with Fridays being all virtual day at our middle and high schools. We offered to all families a virtual option. Now, we did this at the lower grades with full intention of making sure that those literacy and numeracy uh, goals are being met before third grade. Because, you know, we know, right, there's some statistics that speak directly to if you get to third grade, it's going to be next to impossible to close those gaps. So we wanted to make sure we address that. But what we found is that we currently have about 54% of our students that are home during virtual learning. Uh, and, and even though the remote learning is uh, moving forward, uh, it is not the same as being in the classroom with a teacher. But even more concerning, Julie, was that we found that uh, of, of that 54%, uh, it was definitely black, brown, and certainly children of poverty in large numbers that selected the virtual option. So it's really requiring us to look at how do we now flip the script on what we're doing and how do we meet those needs of those students uh, who need us the most uh, while they're at home. Can I ask a quick question on that? Because I am surprised that the highest percentage are the uh, children of color that are opting for the distance learning. What do you attribute that to? You know, I think there are several things within our community and I can speak uh, directly to uh, the impact that this virus has had on people of color. It's very different. Uh, and, and you know, I, I'm not saying that uh, it has not impacted the white community because certainly it has. But I do believe when you talk to people about, uh, and I look at my staff, which is very diverse, and we talk about even how this virus has affected us and our families, it's a very different conversation. So I do believe because the African-American community in Shreveport uh, has been impacted so greatly, uh, it made that decision really easy for a lot of families. And I do believe a lot of people are just, you know, based on media and what you hear based on where you receive your news. And we know that this is a very polarized world now. And you can choose to listen to all liberal media or all very conservative media or even crazy media. So whichever you choose, that's what I think is driving the decision. And I do believe through our African-American churches, through our African-American community, uh, the conversation was about it's not time to go to school. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Dr. Strong? Oh, no, I'm sorry. I was supposed to go to, I was supposed to, oh, go to Dr. Glazer. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Um, Dr. Garee, actually, I love what you said, keep the main thing the main thing, because mm -hmm. I said earlier before we started, I try to block out the noise around opening schools. Right. And I've spoken to my faculty a lot about trying to block out the noise. Mm -hmm. And it's see what's best for our kids under our roof at this given time. So we actually came back in person for six days. My goal was really to get the kids to meet their teachers because you're more likely to 
go on virtual and work for someone that you know and have a rapport with. Mm -hmm. Hoping to stay open for about three weeks, but actually it got to be a staffing issue more than a COVID issue because we had four kids test positive. Once you have two on one campus, the Department of Health requires that you do something about it. And like I had had six teachers come into that one classroom. So we had so many faculty that were quarantining for various reasons. We really had to go virtual for a while and we're gradually bringing them back now. We are going to bring them back. We brought faculty kids back this week. We're going to bring our high needs fed kids back next week. And then two weeks from there, we'll bring back another layer of high needs fed kids. And two weeks from there, we'll bring K through four every day for a shortened day. Because again, as Dr. Gurry said, those early years are so important and they really do best when there's a teacher in front of them. And our fifth through 12th, we're gonna bring them back all day, but every other day. So they come two days a week, one week, and three days a week the next week. Um, so that's how we plan on our reopening plan. The virtual world is tricky. You know, as we all know, any of us could get cut off of this call at any time. And that is happening to our students and they're showing videos when the teacher shows a video that maybe the internet goes out at that time. So it's a tricky place. I am concerned about the, the um, achievement gap really increasing during this time. No doubt. Dr. Strong, I'm sorry that I, I did that last time. That's How all about right. you? But it, our problem is internet access. It's a huge problem. Uh, only probably 30% of the parish has what I call dependable internet. I mean, if you can't stream a YouTube video, you can't virtual. And that is a huge struggle for us right now. And because of the rule, the, the, the lack of people living in our outside of our small town with, you know, 1,600 people in it, there's, there's no reason for companies to, there's no economic value for them to go set up internet or run a backbone. So we're struggling. And I have over 25% of my kids virtual right now. It's a mix of jump drives. Uh, we're taping a lot of lessons, taping teachers, and we have pickup points for those kids without internet. They can pick up a jump drive. They can watch a lesson. Uh, it's, it's a struggle for us out here. And we, we knew that was coming because in March, when, when the governor canceled school and sent us all home, we struggled then. And you don't fix the backbone of internet structure in a, you don't fix it in a year, 18 months, two years. So that is a problem of ours in all the rural districts up here in the northeast part of the state. It's it's making it's making a it's making it a struggle, but it's also very frustrating because there's not a lot you can do about it at this time. It's just do the best you can. No doubt, and I mean that's actually what we were going to talk about next is just internet equity. Um, and, you know, I've heard a little bit about, you know, from Dr. Strong, what they've done with jump drives and recorded class. And, and I'll, I'll tell you, I can only imagine how much more difficult that is than even being able to like, you know, Zoom a class or whatever, you know, where you can interact. Um, but how about, how about you, uh, the other two of you um, about internet needs and um, how much are your, how many, like what percentage of your kids can or can't access the internet for whatever reason? So a large percentage of ours can access the internet, Julie. Um, however, 
the device that they have is typically their parent's phone. So they're trying to follow a class or complete a lesson on their parent's phone. So we did order computers early on. We had been one-on-one -on -one computers for fifth grade and up for the last several years. But this year, of course, we went one-on-one -on -one computers, kindergarten through 12th grade. But now we have this group of kindergarten through fourth graders that we're trying to teach them how to turn it on. Then how do you go to the student information system to get to the list of classes that you have? And a first grade is not on for five hours a day. So they might be in a synchronous class for 30 minutes and asynchronous for 40 minutes, and then they have to log back on again. And that happens about three times during the day. And then as uh, Ms. Dr. Strong said, you know, if they, um, if the teacher presents a YouTube video, I can't tell you the amount of crashes we, ha we are having. We have a large bandwidth from Cox, but it comes up the bandwidth and then our um, firewall is playing havoc with this many people on the uh, internet at one time. So I just approved a $120,000 upgrade for our schools on Friday to, to upgrade that uh, firewall, we educate 2,400 kids. Think about if you educate 40,000, what that means. It, the challenges are tremendous. And we're about to find out from uh, Dr. Gorey how bad that could be. <laughs> right, it can be. You know, we were very fortunate and, and really learned a lot from our spring, uh, that pivot to virtual that we did. And, and what I'll tell you is that we're fortunate that our city, working with our mayor, uh, has, has really worked around this smart city. So there's been a lot of time put into creating these um, hotspots and areas so that we do have high-speed internet connectivity. I'm going to jump to something that Richie said uh, when he talked about how they really only put those spots in those corridors where you have those businesses, uh, which generally tend to be built around people who have homes where they already have internet. So the biggest issue we ran into were those uh, housing those uh, housing developments, uh, those low-income developments. Uh, we had a small bandwidth issue in our rural community, but about 95% of our kids had access. What we've done, though, working through my equity office, though, is that we have uh, set aside um, quite a bit of money uh, around how do we make sure everyone has high-speed internet. And really, we're working with families individually around what those needs are when they arise. Uh, as far as devices, um, we made a lot of progress and were able to assess in the spring what our needs were, uh, set aside CARES Act dollars, uh, mainly to make sure that we did uh, go to a one-to-one -one device model. Now, and when we say this, it's not a one-to-one -one saying that every child is going to get a Chromebook, but it's really about how do we meet your needs where they are. If you ask me about my daughter, she has three devices, all Apple. Uh, so she has no desire to have a Chromebook, but nevertheless, anyone that needed that, we are meeting those needs. And then the things are back ordered, so and as they are across the country. So we're still developing, getting those things in, but really proud of my, uh, my technology team with what we've done with hotspots uh, for those families in need. Uh, as well. And I'm telling you, you have a, a, a low-income housing community in the middle of the city with no connectivity. So 
those are things that we're meeting with the city and parish alike around now. How do we prevent this as we go forward? Uh, you know, and we really are describing this as being the new uh, clean water. Uh, there's just no way when you talk about telemedicine and when you talk about education coming by, by you know, over, the, over the, the network wires, we have to make sure that everyone can access this. Yeah, you know, I was wondering, Mr. Strong, up there, what kind of issues, I mean, is it all being able to access the internet in terms well, of that there's just no infrastructure there's there? No, there the, the best internet up here is at my schools. It's all fiber connections. But other than that, there is no, there's no other fiber. You can't get a cell signal four miles out of town. I mean, where I live is, is horrible. Mm -hmm. Um a Wi-Fi device, I mean, you might get a little 3G if the weather's good. It's just, there's no infrastructure and there's no need for companies to go in and build infrastructure. And yeah. that's, that's something that's gonna have to, there's gotta be some type of fiber backbone with towers set up in order to feed. Uh, you know, and you're we're talking about the poverty gal. You, you take a kid that has internet access, the whole world's at your fingertips, good or bad, okay? The whole world's at your fingertips. But a kid without any access or device, or I mean, we're supplying Chromebooks through CARES money, but it's only as good, it's like having a cell phone without a phone plan. Sometimes you know good to give them a device if you do not have connectivity. And we're struggling with that. We're putting up hotspots uh, around our schools where they can come in so many of the kids doesn't have transportation or anything like that. So it's it's a challenge and it's it's nobody's fault. It's just the geographical location and the way everything's so spread out of Right. Yeah. Julie, one thing I will add to that, though, is that I do think when we talk about conversations with legislatures and where this where this work and this conversation should lead us, I do think that uh, it should not be uh, Mr. Strong's fault or at the, the fault of his children that they live in a part of our state where those right. resources are not available. So I do think at the end of the day, if we look at our state in general and the, the large number of children that don't have accessibility, this is a state issue and we do need to approach it from that from that perspective and look at what are our legislators and our state leadership going to do to help us meet the needs of our children. So. Well, you know, I understand and agree. I mean, quite frankly, if the, the system, if the capitalist system uh, by nature isn't going to put businesses, putting that infrastructure up there, um, then the, the government, that's where we have to make sure that there's equity around the state. And I'm assuming that you guys grow a lot of the products that people eat and build houses from right. and all that. Well, we're, we're the number one sweet potato producer in the, in the, <laughs> in the sweet state. Potatoes? So, sweet potatoes? This what, that's what sweet potatoes. A lot of sweet oh, potatoes and a lot of corn, a lot of rice. And it's all there. Um, you know, again, Wi-Fi, if you're talking to legislators, should be a utility like water and electricity. Right. Absolutely. Exactly. The equity right. gap is insurmountable, if not. Mm -hmm. So it, that has to be certainly statewide and even countrywide that we get to that point. And you know, some I'm sure my colleagues will agree with me on too, though, is that you're seeing all these studies that come out now that really speak to, uh, yeah, sure, we'll get to vaccine, we'll get to herd immunity, but what does the, this look like two years out? 
Uh, and you know, when you look at some of the academic gaps that are being created as we talk on this Zoom today, how is that going to affect the lives of people in our state forever? Uh, so, and again, these are people that are going to be here. So we need to make sure that we're doing everything we can. Uh, Patty, I love the analogy, the analogy of that to electricity because well, that's everywhere now. High-speed internet that needs to be as well. Well, I can also tell you, though, from serving in the legislature, that getting water, getting quality water out there, and getting good electricity out there, that it is <laughs> not a simple thing. It's not. Uh, you know, I know. I, I, I've heard a lot of those um, debates, and um, but it is something that I, I can tell all three of you and everybody that's listening that I'm pretty sure that when this session comes around, this is something that the women of Elevate Louisiana are definitely going to be. Uh, have this be one of our very top priorities. Um, it's something that needs to happen. I, we completely agree. You know, speaking of um, gaps that might even be growing worse because of our situation right now, one of the things that I've been concerned about is um, what what happened to all of our kids when we shut school down for what it was that basically two and a half months um, that they didn't have school. And God forbid if you had a child that needed to go to summer school, um, there was none of that. So what effect did all of those shutdowns have on educational attainment? Um, could it be measured and how do we think we're going to be able to close it? Well, that's all, that's my biggest fear. My baby's pre-K through second grade. Um, I mean, learning to read, learning, learning their fundamentals and that's just snatched away from them. And Virtually teaching a first grader how to read is a different story than than getting a tenth grader in a geography class online. That that's something that we're struggling with. We tried this summer. We had three or four mini camps just for those pre-K through second graders. Had a great participation. A lot of diagnostic testing. A lot of uh, we done uh, three different sets, two weeks per per set. We got a lot of positive results. Uh, are they caught up? I don't think so. I don't. I think it's going to take a while. And I think I know Lamar. I know. I know they're they're in the same boat as us. We got a whole section of kids now that are behind that have to be remediated, and they're going to have to be remediated in class. Now, if those kids chose virtual, think about those options for a kindergartner that chose virtual for the first grade. So. That I'm with you. That is our biggest concern right now is that level, that age of student is top priority. Yeah. I didn't even think about them as much as I was even thinking about, you know, somebody who had done Algebra 1 and now they have to go to Algebra 2. But what you bring up is, is so true. And, and yeah. I think about how early education and being able to have a better program of that in our state would help too. Dr. Gorey? Yeah, I want to share a quick story about, uh, well, it was in May, early May, I'd run into one of my teachers, a uh, first year, first kindergarten teacher, who is doing amazing things in one of our most challenging Title I schools. And, and I, she told me the story, and it really, it framed how I led my team. She told me the story that she had this group of all um, 
economically disadvantaged children, um, probably 95% African Americans, uh, kindergartners, and, they, and a lot of them, I mean, in March, were on the cusp of reading. Uh, not quite there yet, comprehension not there, but really making those pro that progress every day. And I think we all know when they hit it, they hit it. Uh, and she knows that a lot of them were about to, she called it, hit that wall. And then they're just running. Uh, but they left on March 13th, and as she had called and tried to engage them in uh, what we were doing at that time for, for remote learning, she couldn't get any engagement. So it just broke her heart to know that uh, from March 13th, probably up until last week, many of our children have done nothing academically. Uh, so that's a lot of time lost. So really glad that we work in a, worked within a system where the state did help us to uh, realign curriculums around our tier one curriculum so that we've aligned them so that we are catching and making up some of those skills. But I think if we're to be honest with ourselves, we have a 30 year track record that shows we don't close achievement gaps well. We've got to find that change now because yeah. we don't have a choice because the gaps are just gonna be so much larger. Yeah. And I really hope this year that we're able to take the leap. Uh, and I also hope at the same time, accountability wise, that schools do not receive a new SPS that will. Right. That's the answer. <laughs> we um, need to test, but it just can't. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So we need to test because it'll help measure the achievement gap because mm -hmm. we all know it's there. We all know it's big. Honestly, Discovery did pretty well from March to May without connectivity, but. Mm -hmm. When you talk about teaching a first grader to read, it's a hands-on job. It's not yes. a virtual world, you know? So, and especially nobody bargained for this, right? I mean, the parents didn't prepare for it. The teachers didn't prepare for it. It was just Friday and then Monday we were virtual, you know? So I do hope we're able to take leap. And I do think legislatively, Julie, this is really important that schools take it, but that it does not count against them and that whatever their current SPS is stays firm um, so that it, it doesn't count against them, but it measures kids' growth. Well, yeah, and it's such a- hurricane, The hurricane situation in the Southwest and- the All top, yeah. I mean, you take, you take a place like Calcasieu now that could be months in Cameron and those parishes, Beauregard, I mean, we're looking at months, if not two or three months, getting back up and everything right. So think about how far they're going to be behind since March. Such a heartbreak. I mean, it's just such a heartbreak. I think, I think we're all know, holding out for New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. <laughs> I'm ready to get rid of 2020. That's what I'm ready. I'm ready to see 2020 out of here. Yeah, I know. It's really, yeah. it's been yeah, my grandmother would tell you, Richie, watch what you wish for. <laughs> it's, it's just when you think it can't get any Thank worse God for possibly. what he was giving. That's <laughs> what my grandmother would say. I <laughs> but always, I'm with you, buddy. I'm ready for it to go. I, I describe myself as the eternal optimist all the time. Uh -huh. And I'm like, 2020 is messing with my eternal optimism. <laughs> <laughs> That's not much good yeah. to say. Amen. Um, and, and, you know, I think the next thing I, I wanted to talk about is so fitting right here, but, you know, with the setting that we're in with the schools um, and just the COVID and the hurricanes, and when we talk about social and emotional learning, you know, it's just something that I think is probably more important now than ever, you know, to give these kids a, a safe learning environment and help them achieve 
and be able to succeed in school and, and, and learn those life skills. Um, can you give us some examples of how you can address the social and emotional learning in your school environments, especially with the current complexity? I'll say Dr. Gorey. It's complicated. You know, what I'll tell you though, is that uh, we've been very fortunate, even as we went through the early stages of the pandemic, because our numbers, as the states, all of our numbers were really high. Um, but I had so many families that were being affected that we uh, formed some partnerships early on with our mental health partners in the community. Uh, we were doing tele telemed telemedicine, telesupport uh, for families. Uh, you know, we are a district where we're trauma-informed, so uh, all of our staff has been uh, really trained around how to support and address students uh, who have experienced trauma. So a lot of those things, uh, you know, as we start back up, uh, we will continue to build upon. But, and I, what I'll say to you is that we could do more, uh, but that can't be the part of this conversation is forgotten because there are children that will be dealing with trauma uh, from a social emotional perspective that will prevent them from being successful in school. So just really getting all those those supports in place. You know, we didn't let, we don't, we did not let many, anything in our schools during phase two but we did let our mental health partners uh, back office in our school. So we have that support there and we're doing those things. So those are some of the things that we're doing. But again, I, I think it's something that we can't forget uh, in this season. Absolutely. Dr. Glazer. So Julie, just to effectively demonstrate how difficult online learning can be, my internet just went out and I reconnected quickly. So I, I thought you jumped or something. I was wondering what happened. <laughs> I did not hear the question. Oh, okay. Yeah. We were just talking about, you know, right now with um, the state of the world and plus the hurricane here in Louisiana, um, you know, about social and emotional learning and, you know, just as a, as a, as a, as a part of what we're doing with our schools. Um, and if we had any examples um, of how you can address the social and emotional learning in your school environments in this complexity and in this complex world. We actually have a really active um, counseling department and with the 2,400 kids, we had three counselors and a social worker. And one of the first things I did to reconstruct our budget is to hire another counselor. I felt like the numbers were too great. The needs were too great. Um, we have some families, especially some of our families of color that have lost many people within their family. And I think that's part of why they're more reluctant to come back as Dr. Lamar said earlier. So um, we have a very active program when the kids come back. We have a um, proactive um, uh, they have a term for it. It's not healing team, but similar to a healing team where they're really going to talk to the kids at developmentally appropriate levels with teachers in the room to help them process some of what has happened. Because for most kids, they were out on the 13th, went home, and then just their world changed, you know. And many of them have been nowhere until they show up at school again in August or September, whenever they're restarting. Um, we also have partnered with Auctioner and um, done some interesting things with them, telemed-wise, and that's going to help support our faculty also with their adjustment. Um, so I think, you know, as I like to say, Maslow before Bloom. Kids have to feel good before they can really start processing and learning. They have to know what they're experiencing and going through. 
Yeah. Mr. Strong? We saw that problem in March because you take a kid that's already in a bad situation, school is an escape. School lets that kid come to school. He gets his breakfast or she and her lunch and they get loved on here in our place. And then they, if they're in a bad situation, now they're stuck in a bad situation from March the 13th to who knows. And we struggle with that. My people struggle with that. My teachers, because these teachers know every kid that has problems. And uh, we are, we're piloting, we piloted a program called Purpose Prep. It's an online, uh, it's an online, basically an online social, it's like an online social worker program that, that we started. You can assign different lessons for different kids, whether it's a bullying problem or a anger problem, and it's lessons for them to do. And we're, we're, we're currently doing that as school starts now. We're going to start assigning those. Uh, as far as I've had two social workers and they stay busy. It's amazing. I PC'd here in this little school system about 30 kids last year, which I know PC, I'm a physician. Uh, it's a physician exam where the kid was cutting their cells or making threats to their cells or others. Mm -hmm. I mean, mental health is a huge thing, especially the more, the more poverty you have in your district, the more the mental health problem really comes around. And we deal with that the best we can with the, with the few resources we have. But our little online program is really helping, I feel like. So. Yeah, that's really good. Because, uh, you know, over the summer, well, earlier, right before the summer started, actually, I, I was helping the new uh, Boys and Girls Clubs in Louisiana. And uh, when I realized as I was calling around the state that these kids lost their school, they lost their teachers, they lost their club, they, some of them were put into homes where there were issues. And now those issues were what they had to deal with. So the work that you guys are doing there is so very important. Um, I, I, wanna, I wanna switch, did you have something that you wanted to add to that? No. Um, I wanted to switch a little bit over to um, dual enrollment because that's one of the issues that um, we've been talking a lot about within Elevate. Um, it, it's been repeatedly coming up during these video casts. Um, are you able to address dual enrollment needs of our students during this pandemic? So we're meeting with our, in fact, interesting you mentioned that. We, are, we just got up a meeting with our uh, partner, one of our partner universities, I should say. And what they've done, and I think it's not just one, but I think it's all, all three of the main ones we use, they have modified their schedules to meet our needs. So we will still be able to uh, participate in dual enrollment opportunities for our high schoolers. Great. Yeah, same way for us. Mm-hmm. Same for us, Julie. There may not be as many opportunities as in previous years, but there will still be dual enrollment opportunities in a university's been working with us. That's good. And, you know, I think when, when you look at our workforce and our workforce needs and, and just the need of people to feel that life purpose of having a profession, a career, a, a trade, whatever that might be for that person, what do you need as practitioners out there trying to run school districts and schools to get more opportunities for our kids in dual enrollment? And maybe that's in a regular environment where we're not dealing with COVID, but what, what do we need there to get more opportunity? Well, if I can, if I can speak, you know, in the past dual enrollment's mainly been for college bound kids. 
a lot of gen ed classes, things like that, and they're cheaper classes. But the jumpstart kids we have now really need the dual enrollment. And those, those classes are more expensive, they're harder to get. It's up here where we're at, it's about distance. I mean, it's so far to the technical college, I mean, to the community colleges. I mean, by the time transportation, time you put them on a bus and, and ship them an hour and back, and it, it, it's extremely, I mean, it's, it's a struggle every day. And I need to do more of that embedded in my place. And I, I feel like that is the key to it. We, in the past, you know, Bill and Rob was on for college bound kids, but, but the Jumpstart kids make up at least 60% of my graduating class now. And those kids, it's just not as many opportunities for those Jumpstart kids to take Bill and Rob. And my heart goes for those kids. Yeah, because that's where I see just such enormous potential, you know. Cause oh, electricians, I think plumbers, yeah. all that is is a lost art almost. Right, and I could not agree with you more uh, on that. And and one thing we've done is really try and increase uh, resources and uh, funding around what we're supporting in our kids. And one thing we did uh, early on was uh, as an equity issue when we did a school consolidation. Uh, we committed to the co community that we will return the money to the students and we created an early college high school in one of our um, uh, historic African-American communities and historic African-American schools. So we are covering all of your dual enrollment costs in that school. So how we increase those dollars uh, is really important. I spoke to uh, a lot of the, you know, the big uh, um, the earning gap in Shreveport, and it's documented. There's a group of children who have no problems getting anything they want, and they take advantage of dual enrollment because they go to places like Tulane as sophomores almost, and, and what a better, what a, what a great advantage that would be. So those families are taking advantage of what our job has been is to really look at this from an equity perspective and make sure we provide as many children with those opportunities as we can. So resources is what we need. Uh, I do think the colleges are always, you know, they love our dual enrollment because it too helps them a lot. So I think that we have the partner schools and they're located right here in the city. So uh, we don't have the distance challenge, but really those resources to really push them to continue to create. But Richie's right. Those um, lost trades and lost skills are what we really need to. Yeah, I mean, especially for kids that have no real intention of going to college, which is fine. Right. To be able to come out of high school with a, a trade would be amazing. So, And um, similar, Julie, uh, it is about resources for us also. Um, we have some kids who earn the potential for dual enrollment, but maybe cannot afford the cost of it. So how we can um, really channel resources into dual enrollment to help with the cost of it as well as having enough um, practitioners, educators to provide those courses to high school kids. I think that's our two challenges right now. Yeah, and you know, I spent a lot of my time in the legislature sort of trying to dispel the rumor mill or the rhetoric around spending, you know, in Louisiana. And, and one of the things I think I might have to get my spreadsheets back out, <laughs> because I think people don't understand um, all the time how their public dollars are being used. And what, a, what there are some really good uses for our public dollars out there. And, and that's certainly one of them. Um, so changing gears a little. 
you know, the education community in Louisiana has just had an extraordinarily tough year and we need each other more now than ever. Is there a message that you would like to share with our listeners and members to let us know what we can do to assist you in this journey to educate our kids? That's a big one. I'll go ahead and get mine out of the way. All right. (laughs) (laughs) I, I am very, very worried or nervous because of the COVID, the hurricane. RMFP is what we live and die by. And because of the virtual and homeschooling and all the shakeup we've had, I just feel like we need to have a hold harmless MFP on this October 1 count. And take our February numbers. Now, if a district is up, certainly reward them for that. But as we move into this, and, and a lot of it depends on what phase we're in, we're in phase two, that makes people nervous. I'm just worried districts all over the North and South are gonna be with a decline in enrollment when it's all said and done. And we have enough to worry about then, especially with what we're dealing with at schools, trying to have school, then worry about the money problem. And I I have superintendents reach out to me all the time, nervous about their numbers. We might be down 50 kids, might be down 200 kids. Uh, If we had a fail-safe mechanism on MFP this year, it would be a blessing and would be a relief of as much or more than accountability for most of these small rural districts, for sure. Right. Right. And, 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 you know, I know part of the struggle is going to be how do you balance the desire and the real constructive use of accountability with that. But I I think what what I see is a situation like what you see, that if we don't do something like that... um, we're just to in. hold harmless or take your yeah. February 1 numbers because you know you can run a budget on that. And then let's wait to February and get a real count and see what happens. Right. right. And, and I'll agree with Richie because I do believe we also have these families that are home, uh, kind of, I call them letting us be the guinea pigs. And they're <laughs> waiting to see how things play out. And with some of these families, we're, we're, we're finding them, but we, some of them we just won't find until it's too late. And I do think what Rich is describing would help with that. Uh, you know, what I'd say too, though, is that uh, we need everyone to realize and to appreciate the importance of the work that we do in K-12. Uh, we need everyone to realize and appreciate that K-12 speaks to what the future of our state will look like. Uh, we need everyone to understand that all hands on deck, we've got to do what we need to do to ensure that we are preparing students for what they will face in the future. And, and I really believe if we all work towards that end, uh, we will be able to do things like what Richie describes and realize that we need to do that. Um, you know, we, we've all been forced to be fiscally responsible. So it's not that we're asking for uh, just this empty check. So, but again, making sure that we don't take so much away that we have to restrict opportunities for children. Yeah, totally. And I hope to, I hope, I hope that we're able to receive enough federal funding, you know, in the coming months to offset things like we have, you know, for a few months ago, you know, because I was so concerned with what would happen budgetarily in the state. Dr. Glazer? Julie, if we're speaking to families, I would ask families to really understand adjusting and adapting at this time. Um, there is no one foolproof plan. 
I do wish school leaders had a bit more guidance on um, basic data reading. I am constantly tracking data. I'm not an epidemiologist, never wanted to be an epidemiologist. And I, I, I wish there were guidelines that said, you know, here's when it's safe to open schools, but there are no data guidelines for that um, from the state. So I would ask parents to partner with their school and to try again to block the noise around it, whether the noise is around everybody's got to go back to school or the noise is around no one should be back at school and work with your school leaders to make a plan that works for your own community at that given time. Um, as far as legislators go, again, holding that MFP at the rate that we have it now would help tremendously because this year is extremely expensive. We are getting CARES money and some other money. I'm more worried about next year, actually. Yeah. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I agree with you. Yeah. And make sure you remember that CARES money is not real money because it doesn't come back. <laughs> yeah. Funny it's about sure that one-time spending. Every, everybody's well, fine with ignoring the one-time spending now, huh? <laughs> and the thing, the other thing to think about is loss of revenue on your tax base that's coming. Now. Okay, it's coming. Oil and gas is down, avalurum's down, sales tax in some places is really off. So as you look at, at the bubble that's coming at the first of the year, it, it's going to be huge for a lot of districts all across the state. Large plants shut down halfway through the summer. It's just a lot going on. I know. Well, and you know, when we had a brand new legislature, all I could think is we have a surplus. This was before all of this happened. Brand new legislature, we have a surplus. They're gonna come in and give it all back and then God knows what'll happen. Well, I'm almost thankful that we had this bad thing happen before there was as big of an opportunity to let's get rid of the 0. 0.45 pennies. Cause I felt it coming, I really did. And um, hopefully, hopefully we'll be able to stem the tide and then um, make some common sense moves because uh, it's just so important that we do right by our students and our citizens and um, yeah. So lastly, are there any aspects of the new normal that you would actually want to retain after the pandemic ends? I know for me, um, I've learned some value of working at home and Sometimes I've gotten more time with my kids than I would have. You know, I always guess I look for what's the bright spot? Is there a bright spot? Is there something that you think we can glean from this that we wouldn't have otherwise had? You know, and, and Patty described herself as an eternal optimist. I, I'm often described as that as well. And what I tell people is that, you know, we look at the way we've done school for the past, what, 400 years, uh, and uh, we've pretty much stayed the same. And let's be realistic, it has not worked for everyone. So let, let's take this opportunity to really determine what are those things that may work better and may provide more opportunities for all children. So uh, that, that's one of the things that I constantly uh, push my team on. Like, okay, we're, we're here now. So how can we identify what is working and what is working better for children? Because it's very different. So we're constantly, uh, you know, Julie, looking for things in that space. Yeah. Either one of y'all want to pipe in something? Well, I will say just in, in taking a whole different approach, 
and I, were t I was talking to some of my people the other day, the way we're disinfecting, the way we're highly conscious of employees' health and safety and, and disinfecting classrooms and, and halls and school buses and bathrooms just about hourly, that cannot hurt as we move forward. I think a lot of that is going to stick and make it a cleaner environment overall. I think it's I think it's instilling in our younger generation the cleaning, washing your hands as much as you can, staying as clean, and and the social distance aspect. You know, not getting all up, not sharing a drink, not a lot of that. A lot of that I think will follow this generation that's being exposed to this. And I know it's opened my eyes. It's got to help with other things like the flu that we battle every Absolutely. year. I mean, we mm -hmm. battle it every year. Probably worse than the COVID a lot of times with the, with the small baby strep flu. But as we go through that, I think we've learned how to be better administrators as far as on our plant facilities go in our school buses. I think it makes it a safer environment for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of, uh, in line with Winston Churchill, I should say, when he says, don't waste a good crisis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you have to be really an eternal optimist for this, but we should look for opportunity. And I think um, both Mr. Strong and Dr. Gorey have mentioned some of the opportunities. One of the things that I keep looking at, and remember I basically open schools for a living, is how do we now reimagine school? Um, we were, Discovery was going to write an online charter as our next strategic move anyway, and COVID has now allowed us to pilot an online charter. So um, we're seeing what works and what doesn't work, and we're seeing how kids can learn better. And, you know, there are kids from hurricanes and kids who need hospitalization and kids that have just very different needs, maybe don't have access to a brick and mortar building for some reason that possibly this will give us some new opportunities on how to educate kids and how to reimagine education. So I keep holding on to that. Yeah, yeah, and those are all great points. For a little levity, I, I, I went to the doctor the other morning at, and usually where you sit in this waiting room where literally the chairs are all touching. And I mean, you're in this doctor's office and albeit it was, it was, a, it was not a like infectious, disease kind of doctor it was oncology but the fact that everybody had some room to breathe I thought man I hope we can keep this <laughs> I mean like I love people I, agree. But I don't need yeah. to breathe their air I don't even right. know them <laughs> so, well um it really has been a pleasure to get to know you guys a little bit better and uh I've, I've really really enjoyed our talk and hope we can keep this conversation going which in fact we will um I'd just like to thank Superintendent Lamar Garee, Dr. Patty Glazer, and Superintendent Richie Strong. We look forward to spending more time with you on September 25th at the workshop or symposium. For those of you who are listening, if you're interested in joining Elevate Louisiana and want to be part of the larger interactive webinar on September 25th, please contact us through social media on Facebook at, at @elevatela. That's at Elevate LA with two L's in the Elevate, or by visiting our website at elevatela.org. Again, two L's in the Elevate. You can also visit us there if you're interested in membership. 
And finally, don't forget to share this videocast on your page if you found it interesting and to share the news about Elevate Louisiana. I'm your host, Julie Stokes, and see you next time.